Okay, today we're going to move our focus uh, to the West as we talk about the idea of manifest destiny uh, on the frontier. Now, way back in 1804, President Thomas Jefferson asked his personal secretary, Meriwether Lewis, and the explorer, William Clark, Lewis and Clark, to tell him exactly what he had bought when he bought Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase. Starting out from St. Louis that year in 1804, Lewis and Clark traveled most of the length of the Missouri River, they crossed the Rockies, and they pushed all the way to the Pacific in Oregon in 1805, and then they came all the way back in 1806, one of the great American adventures. Now, along the way, they saw great natural wonders. They saw mountains, they saw rivers, they saw the Great Plains, and incidentally, they saw a large number of Indians. When they returned to Washington, two years after leaving, Lewis and Clark told Thomas Jefferson of the vastness and the richness of this huge territory, and also told Thomas Jefferson what he probably already knew. He had gotten a bargain. Now, Lewis and Clark also planted the seed of an idea that would take root in the American mind, the American consciousness, and dominate the 19th century. And that idea was manifest destiny. America's destiny was to stretch geographically from ocean to ocean, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Now, over the course of the 19th century, virtually all Americans articulated and believed in this idea that America was a unique nation, a unique civilization, if you will, that its concepts of democracy and egalitarianism and of liberty were special, were exceptional, and that America deserved to stretch from sea to sea, that it was right, almost natural, that it do so. During the 19th century, especially the first half of the 19th century, both Northerners and Southerners, all Americans, articulated this idea of manifest destiny. Now, they may have disagreed over whether slavery should exist in this vast Western land, but they agreed that America should have it, and that sooner or later, America would. Now, there's an obvious sense of cultural superiority in this view, what we now might call uh, Eurocentrism. It conveniently ignored the fact of Indians inhabiting most of the Louisiana Purchase lands, as well as uh, Spanish. Uh, uh, and after its independence in 1821, uh, Mexican influence in much of these lands. Uh, in Texas, in California, or what became California, and much of the Southwest. Not to mention British and even some Russian influence in the Pacific Northwest. So, if America was to fulfill its manifest destiny, it would have to move a lot of people out of the way. But over the course of the 19th century, America did just that. It moved Indians out of the way, it moved Mexicans out of the way, and we'll talk today about how that occurred. And we'll talk as well about how Americans in the West, in the first half of the 19th century, built and structured their societies. 
There's also the question of whether these new societies would be different from the older societies in the East, or whether they would just replicate many of the aspects of Eastern society, their individualism, their materialism, their class stratification and inequality. Just replicate all of that in a Western setting. So let's start with the American encounter with uh, Indians and also some historians' views of the encounter uh, between whites and Indians. Now, the traditional uh, view of this encounter uh, was articulated in the 1890s by a historian named Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, who was actually a professor at Madison for a long while. Frederick Jackson Turner's thesis was that whites moving to the west, moving to the frontier, brought civilization, white civilization, to a savage Indian-dominated environment. Frederick Jackson Turner's definition of the frontier was telling. His definition was where savagery met civilization. But more recent historians view Western movement in much less uh, value-laden and much less celebratory terms. For them, it's an encounter between different groups with different cultures, but one is no better than the other. White Indian cultures uh, uh, are, are pretty much given the same value and the same validity. Under this idea, this approach to the history of the West, uh, the winners and losers were not necessarily foreordained uh, because of superior culture or superior civilization, as they were in Frederick Jackson Turner's view. And the winners, meaning the whites, were not necessarily supposed to win as they were in Frederick Jackson Turner's view. And no one group has a monopoly on values like courage, or dignity, resourcefulness, and intelligence. Now, this latter historical approach, uh, and that this latter historical approach is known as the New Western History, uh, and that's grown up over the last maybe 30 years. Uh, and I think it's better uh, and fairer uh, than the Turner, the old Turner view, I think, because it's more objective. Uh, although we must be objective as historians and not go to the other extreme from Frederick Jackson Turner and engage in white bashing instead of Indian bashing. Now, by 1815, most Indians, uh, as I discussed earlier, uh, had been pushed out beyond the Mississippi River. Now, as a society based largely on hunting, whites were, uh, Indians, excuse me, were at the mercy of the supply of animals. And whites, by destroying their hunting grounds, effectively, pushed uh, Indians west uh, uh, from the land east of the Mississippi. But a number of Indian tribes remained in the East. And one, the Cherokees of Georgia, is worth our attention as an example of the ways in which whites and Indians clashed even when their cultures were similar. Now, Georgia Cherokees had been allowed to stay on Georgia land uh, by federal treaty in 1785. And there were about 60,000 of them uh, by the 19th century. In Georgia, Cherokees became farmers and traders, pretty much like the surrounding white population 
in fact, with their high literacy rate, uh, uh, high rate of conversion to Christianity, and uh, system of constitutional self-government, the Cherokees were more like the whites than perhaps any other Indian group. But nonetheless, they were not whites, and they held land in Georgia that whites wanted. So it was inevitable that eventually there would be a white attempt to take Cherokee lands in Georgia. And in view of what we said on Monday, uh, it was also inevitable that the Democratic Party, the party of white supremacy, would lead this attempt, that Andrew Jackson, that old Indian hater, uh, would be involved in it, and also that some Whigs would seek to defend Indian rights and lose. In 1827, the state of Georgia declared the Federal Treaty of 1785 protecting Cherokee land uh, void and moved to seize the land under state authority. The Cherokees went all the way to the United States Supreme Court claiming the primacy of that Federal Treaty of 1785 over state law. Georgia, and here there were more overtones of the states' rights theories that would be articulated in the nullification crisis of 1832, which I spoke of, uh, and also the 1860 secession crisis, which I will speak of, uh, uh, Georgia claimed that it had jurisdiction as a state of the lands located within its state. Now, Andrew Jackson, not surprisingly, sided with Georgia. He said that these were internal state matters. In 1830, Jackson proposed and Congress passed the Indian Removal Act. It offered the Cherokees land in the federal Indian territory, what today is Oklahoma. But it told them that they must leave Georgia. Now, Andrew Jackson's statement when the uh, uh, Indian Removal Act uh, uh, passed, uh, 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 which uh, we read for today, uh, indicates uh, his view that an Indian could never be as viewed as equal to a white, could never be a true citizen of the United States, and never be white in culture, even if, like Cherokees, they adopted white ways. What good man, at Jackson asked rhetorically, would prefer a country covered with forests and ranged by a few thousand savages to our extensive republic, studded with towns and prosperous farms and filled with all the blessings of liberty, civilization, and religion? The Cherokees then, according to Jackson, and most whites, were in the way, as I mentioned in an earlier lecture in the way of white expansion, in the way of white progress, in the way of white civilization, since in this view an Indian could never be civilized. Andrew Jackson told the Cherokees they had two choices. They could submit to the laws of Georgia, give up their lands, or they could just get out go to the uninhabited territory west of the Mississippi River where they could practice their, in Jackson's view, inferior civilization. And, of course, the second option was preferable to Jackson. Jackson went so far as to defy 
the Supreme Court's 1832 Worcester v. Georgia, uh, that's W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R, Worcester v. Georgia decision, holding that the federal treaty of 1785 guaranteeing Cherokee land rights in Georgia was superior to the state law. Justice Marshall has made his decision, Jackson reportedly said, uh, when he heard of the Supreme Court's ruling against him. Now let him enforce it. Jackson and his successor, Martin Van Buren, stood aside while Georgia took away Cherokee lands and set them off on foot to federal Indian territory in Oklahoma, the infamous Trail of Tears on which thousands of Cherokees perished and which we'll uh, be hearing more about today, right? Right. Now, the lesson of the Cherokee dispute was that most whites viewed Indians as different and their cultures as different, no matter how Indians behaved. Now, while there is obvious racism in this, there is also some truth. Whites and Indians did have different ways of looking at life. And both whites and Indians acknowledged this. What were these differences? Well, whites were more individually oriented. They looked to make money. They weren't shy about exploiting the land. Indians were more communal. The idea of capitalism was foreign to them. They used the barter system. They were less individualistic and had more respect for the land in ways that they viewed as sacred uh, 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 and whites really did not. Whites were obsessed with progress. Indians were obsessed with tradition. So all in all, these were two value systems that did clash. There's really no way around this. It is interesting, however, that both whites and Indians viewed each other in the same stereotypical terms. An example of this was the Black Hawk War of 1831 and 1832, in which the Sac and Fox tribes, uh, uh, first of the Fox River, which had been pushed across the Mississippi, came back to try to take western Illinois under their leader, Black Hawk. Now, after a brief war with white settlers, one of whom, incidentally, was Abraham Lincoln, Black Hawk was defeated and pushed back across the Mississippi to the west. In Black Hawk's surrender statement, he refers to whites as, quote, typically deceitful and dishonest, as, quote, hypocrites and liars, adulterers, lazy drones, all talkers and no workers. Exactly, in other words, what the white stereotype of Indians was, where whites would, would basically uh, 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 portray Indians in the same terms is contrasted with white bravery and white honesty that Indians supposedly does not have. So while it is true that whites held bigoted assumptions regarding Indians, it must also be pointed out that Indians held similar remarkably similar assumptions about whites. In any case, the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s were a time of white western migration across the Mississippi into the Louisiana Purchase Territory and a series of encounters, some involving political treaties, some violent encounters involving military action, with the Indian populations there. 
Now, the basic themes and trends of this migration were, first, white geographic progress. They are moving west. Two, Indian movement, mostly forced, out of traditional areas further west, and sometimes south, in search of new hunting grounds. Three, broken treaties. Indians gave up the bulk of their land for supposedly protected areas, uh, but whites ignored them and continued to push them out. And four, the imperatives of manifest destiny, swallowing up Indian culture, Indian economic autonomy, and especially Indian geographic integrity. But it would only be after the Civil War, which is later in this course, that this story would reach its climax and will return to its end. Now, the other aspect of Manifest Destiny during this period, the first half of the uh, 19th century in the United States, involved expansion into Texas. Now, Texas belonged first to Spain, and then after Mexican independence in 1821, to Mexico. Now, the area which is now Texas was largely uninhabited in the early part of the 1820s, so the Mexican government made a decision a big mistake, as it turned out, to invite Americans to settle in Texas and build up its infrastructure and economy. And so Americans poured in, mostly from the South, in the 1820s and 1830s. Inevitably, these American citizens were more loyal to uh, the United States than to Mexico, which ostensibly controlled Texas. And they started calling for an independent Texas uh, with an eye towards eventual annexation by the United States, all in the name of Manifest Destiny. Now, there was an inevitable ethnic aspect and even racism involved in all of this. In 1836, when the American citizens of Texas formed an army and proclaimed their independence from Mexico, their call to arms was replete with references to, quote, colored Mexicans, Mexicans as, quote, barbarians and uncivilized savages, and contrast Contrast between the supposedly indolent and lazy Mexicans and the industrious Americans who, quote, redeemed farms from the wilderness. These Texas Americans, or American Texans, in fact, explicitly tied their revolution to the American Revolution and its themes of independence, liberty, and white equality and republicanism. And Texas did, in fact, get its independence in 1836 after a brief war with Mexico that featured the slaughter of 200 Americans, uh, including Davy Crockett, at the Alamo, uh, a, a force that had held off a much larger army of Mexicans for two weeks, creating a classic martyrdom that Texas celebrates to this day. Has anybody ever seen the Alamo? Been at the Alamo? What is it like? It's beautiful, huh? It's in downtown San Antonio, right? Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it. I always wanted to go. It's like a shrine. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to try to go. And this war also uh, uh, with Mexico, this in war of Texas independence with Mexico, also featured a month after the slaughter at the Alamo, uh, troops under General Sam Houston, after whom what city is named? Houston. 
Okay. Uh, defeating Mexico troops or Mexican troops at the Battle of San Jacinto and winning Texas independence. Something Mexico resents to this day, although uh, most Americans, I don't think, realize this. Now, while the question of United States annexation of Texas, which took place nine years later in 1845, is a subject for another time uh, because of its association with the slavery in the West issue, uh, which we're going to be discussing later in the course, the significance of Texas independence, as well as the white conquest of the Indians, which I referred to earlier, lies in its connection to the idea of manifest destiny, to the idea that white Americans were destined by God, by their superior culture, by the force of their technological and, uh, 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 and military might to occupy the whole of the American continent from ocean to ocean. And the political assumptions, cultural assumptions, and yes, racial assumptions that were so bound up with this manifest destiny idea will be ones that we'll be returning to later in this course. Now, once Americans were on the frontier, how did they live? Were they different from the more individualized East or merely an echo of it? Now, this is an important question to historians trying to understand what the idea of the West was all about. And, of course, in the 1830s, 1840s, 50s, states like Illinois and Iowa and this one were considered part of the West. Now, for an older and more traditional historian like Frederick Jackson Turner that I referred to a moment ago, uh, 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 you know, his view that, uh, that, that, that Western expansion was a story of the victory of civilization, white over savagery, Indian, for someone like Frederick Jackson Turner, the frontier settler, the Western settler, was above all an individual and an individualist, a nonconformist, if you will. Someone whose lifestyle didn't fit in with the repressed and buttoned-down East. He was out on the frontier, basically by himself, relying on himself and not other people. The ultimate individual. But more recent historians, and I referred to the, I referred to the new Western historians a little earlier, uh, more recent historians, including one by the name of John Mac Farragher, and I'll spell that last name, uh, uh, Mac is M-A-C-K, F-A-R-R-A-G-H-E-R, F-A-R-R-A-G-H-E-R, uh, 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 newer historians like John Farragher, uh, who researched the rural Illinois village of Sugar Creek and wrote extensively about it, well, they present a more complicated and more nuanced portrait of life on the frontier. Now, according to Farragher, in the 1830s, Sugar Creek was a true community and not just a collection of discrete, disparate individuals. Sugar Creek was a mutualistic society where the residents cooperated with and helped each other. A form of republicanism, if you will, I referred to earlier in the course. Even as this concept was under attack in the East, according to Farragher, it is flourishing in the West at Sugar Creek. Now, there was individual ownership of farms in Sugar Creek, of course, but also communal customs like 
allowing animals to graze freely on unfenced property belonging to others, as long as you didn't have a fence up. The sharing of tools and wagons and food. The sharing of work when needed. Barter, where no money would change hands, but uh, uh, there would be a system of exchange of work for other kinds of work or certain goods uh, 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 for performance of certain services. Uh, 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 you know, the idea of barter, uh, 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 it still exists at least in some form today. Uh, 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 when I first met my wife, uh, my father-in-law, who was a dentist, uh, 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 exchanged dental services for gas at the, uh, uh, at the local gas station. So we never had to pay for gas. He did their teeth, we got their gas. That's barter. Okay? Uh, also in Sugar Creek, there was the idea of running debts which uh, were uh, just bookkeeping entries and debts that, were only really, that would only really have to be paid upon death uh, or upon removal from Sugar Creek uh, uh, and no interest paid on these debts. Uh, uh, so Sugar Creek was a society that was everything or anything but individualistic, at least in the 1830s. One that, in relation to the outside world and especially to the East, uh, 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 was in the market, in the sense that it sold its surplus crops in the market, but that internally, within Sugar Creek, was non-market. I mean, when you have no interest on debts, as which is, seemed to be the practice in the 1830s in Sugar Creek, you're definitely not in the market. I mean, when you're, when you're not making money on a debt, uh, that's certainly a non-market transaction. But by the 1850s, 20 years later, as Farragher's account of Sugar Creek ends, things had changed in a major way. Sugar Creek was much less communal, much less cooperative, and much more market-oriented, and much more individualized. Fewer and fewer people owned more and more land. Those who owned land were much more protective of it, fencing their land, so that poorer residents of Sugar Creek couldn't uh, graze their animals on it, and passing laws that prohibited grazing on commonly held lands. Landholders, in fact, were now wholly in the market. There was a money economy, no more bartering. They were now concerned with demarcating uh, land boundaries and building roads that would lead to the market. And with land prices going up as they were, some farmers were forced into the market to pay off the loans that they had to take out to get the lands. And sometimes they lost their lands and became tenants or wage laborers. In some, in the words of Farragher, in Sugar Creek, by the 1850s, a common landscape gave way to a landscape of class. So, by the 1850s, we see that in many ways, the frontier, which many historians view as unique, actually replicated and repeated many of the historical trends of the East. A decline in republicanism and personal independence. A rise in a culture of individualism and materialism. A reliance on the market and a growing class stratification, a gap between the well-off and the not-so-well-off. Now, this is not to say 
that the frontier was exactly like the East, that there were no differences between them, because obviously there were. But it is to say that the frontier was not immune from the same issues and conflicts that the rest of the United States was confronting during the first half of the 19th century, that it was not as unique and not as exceptional as many of our older historians, such as Frederick Jackson Turner, believed it was. In future weeks, in fact, we will see the West as the stage for the nation's greatest issue and greatest conflict, the debate over the future of slavery in America. Illustrating that while an American could go West in the first half of the 20th, of the 19th century for another start at life, he could not start over. The questions, the choices, and the burdens that faced every other American were not things that he could solve merely with distance. They went along with him as he went west. Now on Friday, we will return to the east as we discuss the rise of middle-class reform movements uh, there, including temperance, women's rights, and, of course, most importantly, uh, anti-slavery.